Hello and welcome to another episode of Bookends, the podcast for writers and book lovers. Today's guest is Stella Newman, author of the novel Pear Shaped, published by HarperCollins earlier this year. Pear Shaped is a tale that will make you laugh, probably make you hungry too, as it's filled with absolutely delicious descriptions of food. But it will also possibly make you wince with recognition too, if you've ever had your heart broken by someone who in hindsight, really wasn't worth it. Described as achingly funny, searingly honest, sharp and sweet, Pear Shaped is very much like its author. Here is my chat with Stella Newman. So, listeners, I'm with Stella Newman, the author of Pear Shaped, a novel about love, heartbreak and dessert. And basically the premise of the book is girl meets boy, girl loses boy, girl loses mind. Is that a fair sum up I think it is I think it is and I wanted to write a book about heartbreak in a way that was true to life because I think in a lot of fiction whether that's in movies or in books you get dumped you have cocktails with your girlfriends you're okay again and rightly or wrongly I mean usually the people who break your heart are the people who at least deserve the energy it is a painful process it's like a grief when you go through that sort of emotional arc of anger and then denial and all those things it takes time and you can't just feel better when you're in a psychological painful situation. So I think in the second half, you know, you do see her trying to cope with what too many readers is, well, it's just a relationship with a guy who is a dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> For want of a better um, word, but he is. <laughs> but I think the whole point I was trying to make was actually, you know, when someone has taken your confidence away, you're not operating from a fully functioning, healthy, robust independent sassy point of view you've been laid low by a manipulation albeit one that you willingly went along with what i found very interesting about pear shaped is that we do get the entire warts and all Mm. car crash Mm. description of this relationship Mm. but also the issues that you deal with um in the second half of the book where sophie your heroine becomes very tied up in her body image Mm. um because of the way she has been treated by this man she's in love with Mm. um she's always been made to feel that physically she's not really his ideal yeah but he's doing her a favor by staying with her absolutely um even though he'd prefer a size eight russian model yeah and so then we follow sophie into this it's almost like a it had a nightmarish quality Mm, about it really while i was reading it where she sort of tortures herself Mm. and goes from basically binging to starvation Mm. Um, and back again and then finally she just has this epiphany where she's like what the hell am I doing mm. this is a complete and utter waste of time and and I'm wasting my life you know mm. and um, and I just really appreciated the point you were trying to make is is that a lot of educated intelligent women place so much importance on calorie counting and being trim at the expense of their happiness and their self-esteem I mean it's fine mm. to want to be in good shape mm. and it's fine to to want to be healthy and mm. and fit into a smaller pair of jeans if that's what you want yeah. and that's what will make you happy. But so many people do take it the other way. They take it to such an extreme and it impacts on their happiness. Absolutely. And I, I would not say that the skinniest girl in the restaurant is the one having the best time. I think it's the girl eating the cheese and with an appetite for life and enjoying herself and it's about moderation. But I think we live in a culture where we are so surrounded by absolute idealized unrealistic you know it's a cliche of course you know every 
cover of Heat magazine, Pippa Middleton's Bottom. It is totally pervasive in a way that it is, men are not judged on their looks, women have always been judged on their looks, and we are, you know, surrounded by this one's cellulite and that one's too fat, and it is absolutely, I find it repellent, and yet we all want to look our best. When I was a teenager and in my 20s, it was hard to find a girl who did not have some form of issue about their weight. Not necessarily an eating disorder, but definitely trying to control, you know, what you eat or or how you look and being ever mindful of the fact that how you, your body and the way you look is a large part of how you are valued by not only men, but by other girls, I suppose. Mm, and definitely. it is, I find it profoundly depressing that we think like this and feel like this and how much it affects our lives when we should all be doing far more interesting, useful, healthy pursuits and thinking about our minds and our souls and our friendships and our work and the things that are actually important rather than our gene size not to say that it's not important to be healthy but you know when it becomes obsessive for the wrong reasons it's really really damaging I think maybe when women get to their 30s it seems that people tend to be more accepting of who they are or they work harder to have a healthier balance and exercise seems to be People seem to be embracing it more as they get older as a way of having a a healthier balance. But having said that, I have a lot of girlfriends who I would say deprive themselves on an ongoing basis in order to stay at a certain weight. And that's quite a hard way to live, but I think a lot of people do live like that. It's just a shame that we've got to spend so much of of our 20s or or our teenage years, particularly in my case worrying about all of this yeah when life is there to be lived and enjoyed and and food and enjoying it is such a big part of it it's certainly for me anyway yeah um and that's another thing that um i loved so much about your book is this love of food and this celebration of it all i mean it was all i could do not to nip down to m&s and buy every dessert <laughs> oh well you should have <laughs> that, was, that was there um because sophie does that in in the mm. book um trying out all the desserts it sounds like a dream job did you ever have that job no i would i would uh i think i would never recover from a job where i ate cake or you know the funny thing is that even though in the book um sophie is a dessert developer i don't have that sweeter tooth i mean i do love cakes and biscuits but I would rather have a massive bowl of pasta or a whole loaf of bread I mean I, I like savoury more than sweet we are eating cookies I know we're eating during cookies, this but they have crisps really. in them <laughs> yes mixture of sweet yes. and savoury no I, I love food and I think it is one of the most wonderful pleasures in life and I think people who make you feel bad about having an appetite are people who are probably projecting some of their own issues you know I think What's also interesting is that we have this uh, culture of the celebrity chef. Mm. Everywhere you look, there's the latest cookbook, um, a new deli that's opened, Nigella on the TV. Mm. So there's that aspect Mm. of our culture. And then on the flip side of it, it's um, paleo diet, this, fat blaster, that. So it's no wonder that women are confused and feel a bit tortured by it all. Yeah, it's this very paradoxical culture that we live in as you say where we celebrate it in theory and yet we massively jump on anyone who displays any signs of actually enjoying themselves or indulging so yeah it's it's sort of a very weird spectrum that we find ourselves on and actually you just the middle bit is really where you need to be where you're enjoying things in moderation and not castigating yourself or or you know the self-loathing I mean you mentioned it before in the book and um, the character goes into meltdown 
over, you know, I think I say it's like akin to a broken nail in the scheme of the universe. I mean, she is aware of how shallow and foolish and unnecessary all of this is. And yet the feelings are painful to her because I suppose someone has honed in on an insecurity and just gone for it. For a woman to be told you are not physically attractive enough, that's quite a brutal thing to hear. Very brutal. You know, it's hard to... I think a lot of women can, can relate to Sophie's plight, definitely. If we can go back mm. to the celebration of food mm. that is so prevalent mm. in this novel. I mean, it was just divine. And I do recommend, readers, that you just get yourself a nice pudding and sit <laughs> down with the book. Early on in the book, Sophie goes to a job interview mm. where she is asked, would you rather have an average brownie or no brownie at all? Now, that's such an interesting question. And what is Sophie's answer? She says, I'd rather not have an average brownie because these things matter. You know, if you're going to do it, do it wholeheartedly, do it properly because, it, you know, you get one life and you might as well. And it's not about expensive brownies at all. It's just about having the discrimination to say, this is a wonderful brownie and this is a really average one and I'm not going to waste the calories all the time with something that isn't the best that I can possibly find. And in a way, it's ironic that she has that attitude towards brownies and yet she accepts a relationship that is actually massively flawed but you know she has her standards when it comes to the brownies. I was just about to point that out it's interesting how her standards for what she puts into her body and her food and all Mm. the rest of it they're very high Mm. but yet she accepts far less um, in in her personal life but again I think a lot of women can can relate to that and I take it you would have the same response as Sophie that you would rather not have a brownie at all than have I'd eat it one. all, to be honest. You <laughs> but no, I, I would rather walk the extra two blocks and get the nicer cheese sandwich than the easier option because it's like, you know, Sophie ends up going to a boot camp and there's these really super fit, athletic ex-army trainers who say, you know, food is just fuel and it's just a means to an end to get those protein and carbs and fat into your diet so you can move. And she's like, no, I love food. I love thinking about it. I love eating it. I love cooking it for my friends. And it's a huge passion for her. But for some people, it's less important. And, you know, for some people, sport is massively important or music or people obviously put their energy into different parts of life. But for me, if you're going to eat three times a day, at least, um, Might as well you know, good. it's exactly. Mm. But I understand brownies are a particular passion of yours. I do like a brownie, life. yes. It's true. Having said that, I'm far more into sabre. I, I, I love a brownie. Well, tell us a bit cupcakes. about that. How I did think, you get hooked? I think I do like chocolate quite a lot. I like dairy milk and cheap chocolate. And I, I don't even know if I like posh chocolate, actually. I like chocolate, full stop. I particularly like warm, warm brownies, preferably with ice cream on the side, just because they have a massive... I think they just do some sort of mainline neurological serotonin thing going on in your brain where they just make me feel instantly happy in the same way that a lot of people are into cupcakes and for me a cupcake is a poor man's brownie because it's sort of not enough icing too much sponge no real taste often Mm. whereas a brownie if it's got heft and depth and squidginess and richness and yeah no I, I could definitely always find room for a brownie (laughs) <laughs> I, I understand you've got a blog called Stella Newman's Brownies. Yes. On about your search for the perfect brownie. Yeah. How, well, tell I, us about your search. Again, I think if you're having a really bad day, a small bit of a good brownie can really give you a little bit of a lift. And I think that as a, I don't think the British have necessarily cracked the brownie. 
I mean, people have a very broad church of what they think is a good brownie. I mean, some people like a cakey brownie and some people like something that's almost like a mousse. And it's quite a, you know, there's a lot of debate about what a brownie should be like. There's, in fact, a blog on The Guardian about this and whether it should have nuts or no nuts. I mean, I definitely don't think nuts should be involved at all. But I, do you have nuts in your... I don't like nuts in my brownie no. either. I'm not averse to some solid chunks of chocolate. Mm. But, yes, um, but nuts—it's a bit like putting green beans in a happy meal. Yes, right? absolutely, <laughs> or even a tooth. I would say because it's just that I don't it's expect me to use my teeth. Mm. I am having a really nice time here, and you throw something <laughs> hard at me. Like I find it unreasonable. So I like so, that a tooth. <laughs> yeah. Well, I once worked at the Guardian, and they did. One of my colleagues—we had a canteen there, and they did find a dog's tooth in a falafel. Oh, I put that in the book, actually. God. Yeah, disgraceful. I don't know how they knew it was a dog's tooth. Could have been a cat's tooth. Oh, maybe it was one of those canine molars. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, that makes me feel ill. Yes. And in a falafel as yeah, well. A veget- no, yeah. Vegetarian yeah. Oh, God. Here I am thinking, oh, I'm vegetarian. That would never happen to me. But oh, dear. No, they'll get you. They will get they you. Will. What I loved about mm. your book is it was almost like an insider's guide to foodie London and New York, actually, come to think of it. So the best mm. brownie in London can be found at... On my blog, there's a recipe. My editor, Claire, her recipe, and it's... um, I think it's foolproof. I'm not the best cook in the world, and I made it about five times, and it's always good. Mm. Now, there's a scene in Pear Shaped, rather cringeworthy scene, where dear oh. old Sophie goes oh. on a blind date. Oh, it makes me feel sick, that scene. <laughs> um <laughs> Was that by any chance based on a true story? You know what? It really wasn't. Thank God. <laughs> thank God. I remember writing that scene and I was giggling away to myself because I was because I could see myself doing that, but I have not yet done that. But, um, <laughs> yeah, she gets drunk and uh, and stuff. So oh, it's 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 just humiliating. Yes, I think you know the moral of the story is don't date on the rebound and don't get drunk when your date is not drunk and don't eat moose with your fingers and there's lots of lessons in that yes episode yeah but it um it, it was very funny and i did have to laugh at the bartender smirking <laughs> at her when she realized her date had actually done a runner um. <laughs> oh yes it, it's the shame of it uh, the shame of it tell me the story of how pear shaped came about how did you start writing it i had written another book which took three years to write and I wrote it on and off, I was working, and then I kept on going back to it, and it was slow and painful, and like a marathon, I suppose, except I'd never run a marathon, but it really was difficult to motivate myself, but I wanted to see it through, because um, once you've spent a certain amount of time in something, you you know, you want to see it through, and definitely, um, so I wrote that book, and I got an agent off the back of that book, and she thought she could sell that book, but she didn't end up selling it, but while that was out with publishers, the idea for Pear Shaped came to me, and I wrote Pear Shaped very, very quickly. It took like three months to write. What triggered it, I think, was I had just split up with someone, and I was freelancing at the time at a supermarket. It was the day after Boxing Day. This was the first scene I wrote, but it ends up being halfway through the book, and my ex had gone off on a sunny holiday, and I was shelf-stacking fish, and I just had this moment of thinking, this is shit. <laughs> and I'm not having fun. And he's on a beach and I'm stacking wet fish and I don't like this at all. So, and I mean, in the book, she does something slightly crackers, which I didn't do. <laughs> but that was a starting point of trying to 
make sense of a relationship that I'd had because I, I, I had a bad breakup and I wanted to try and feel in control of what had happened in my life. So... Um, Put all the anguish to good use. Yeah, I think, you I know, you've got to that. try and make some money out of your pain. The experience of heartbreak is it's not universal, but many, many people have been through it, regardless of the context. And I think it is fascinating and difficult and interesting. And I didn't want to write a book about depression as such, because there's a lot of autobiography about depression. Um, and depression is a whole... It's a whole universe. But at the same time, I think there are elements of actual, you know, a mild depression, which, um, you know, a lot of people out there, when you start talking to people about those sort of feelings, people are like, yeah, I've been to therapy, I'm on antidepressants. And there's a lot of it about because I think modern life can be difficult. Uh, we all expect everything all the time. And if we're not having sex with beautiful people every day of the week, then we've failed. And if you haven't got amazing wardrobe and skinny and, you know, and we've it is relatively easy to feel like we're not um, having as much fun as other people. Yes, it's the fear of missing out. Yeah. Mm. You you know, you just never know what's past the surface. And and especially in a Facebook culture where people are constantly posting pictures of themselves in, you know, exotic places or in groovy bars in Shoreditch. This whole culture lived of, look at me, look at how much fun I'm having. And I'm like, well, if you're having that much fun, why are you spending all that time up? You know, well, I, there I mean, is this is a peculiar thing, really. But... Um, I think in a city like London where there's so many options, both in terms of what you should be doing with your spare time and in terms of dating, there's also a lot of loneliness and a lot of sadness. And I think those things, people don't like talking about sadness, loneliness, you know, because no. they're um, miserable and everyone wants to be jolly and put a good, and especially it's a quite a British thing to put a brave face on things. But um, it's quite normal as a human being to have bad feelings from time to time and it's important to try and resolve them, I think. Yeah, so or even just allow yourself to feel yeah. them rather than trying to make it all fix go it, away. Yeah. Trying to fix it all yeah. the time. Definitely. So you found this a rather cathartic process. Mm, I, uh, what I liked was being a puppet master where I could make this person say that and this person react in a certain way. You know, it's that classic thing where, you know, and you're in a situation where someone maybe is mean to you or rude to you and you think it's a perfect thing to say three weeks down the line. Or eight but, years later yeah. in case. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and I think I liked the that angle of being in control of people's behaviour and what came out of their mouths in a way that in life you are only ever at best in control of yourself and usually yeah. not. So that is something I love about writing. You get to... Me too. Put people where you want them. Mm. And you get to have your say in, in many ways. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. So the book came together rather quickly. Mm. And then take us through the, the process of, well... Well, it was, I mean, I, I the experience that was different with Pear Shaped compared to my first book was that I had a, a momentum to it. So I would get home from work and I would write till about two in the morning and then I'd wake up at five in the morning and I'd carry on writing and I'd write on the bus on the way to work and I'd write in my lunch break and... It sounds so stupid and pretentious, but it's just I wanted to be with it all the time because mm. it had a life of its own. And so motivation kind of wasn't even an issue because it was totally what I wanted to do. And I think with my first book, it was like, oh, I've got to do it because I've started. Whereas this, it was like, what's going to happen and where are they going to go? And I, I, I felt very involved in the characters and the story in a way that writing it became not a chore. And momentum, I think, is one thing that if you can get momentum when you're writing, it really helps. I mean, Pear Shaped is quite a pacey book in the way it's written. The sentences are quite short and the scenes are quite short and there's quite a lot of dialogue. So it has almost a what's going to happen next quality to it, I think, in the first half at least. 
because you know something's off, but you're not quite sure what. Second half is slightly slower, but I think that's a reflection of the way it was written, which was quickly and with immediacy. And so I, I wrote it quickly, sent it off to my agent. I knew that there was something to it, that it had something that was... I'm going to use the word honest, whereas obviously it's fiction and nothing is ever honest, and you know people tell stories and that's what writers do. But there was, to me, an emotional honesty. I had put a lot of myself into that book. I had put, as you say, it's a waltz and all, and there's some quite dark and unflattering stuff she goes through total self-loathing and self-hatred and you know just really not cool stuff that you wouldn't necessarily want to broadcast about yourself but she it's all there on the page and I thought well people probably do feel like this because if I've felt like this then maybe someone else has felt like this and I'm going to say it's okay to just you know feel those things so I put it down the page and I called my agent I'm like it's there it's there and she's like yeah I'm busy at the moment I'm like oh (laughs) And then the waiting game. Uh, yeah, <laughs> well, no, actually, I mean, because the first book hadn't sold and I'd waited months and months and months. And then this one, it sold in two weeks. So it was, um, it happened really quickly. Fantastic. So that was cool. That was cool. And then was it, uh, what, a year later it was yes. out in the bookshops? Yeah, no, I think it's about 15 months. It, it takes a really long time with paperbacks um, because covers and marketing and editing and all those sort of things, which I guess in the digital age... If people are publishing just in digitally, you could finish a book and have it out within an hour. So, But I think that's a relatively standard cycle in genre publishing because they have to plan stuff in. So I had a bit of editing. There wasn't too much editing, actually. My editor was brilliant and she did a really good job of cutting the fat and beefing up bits that were not quite, you know, a bit more information about where she lived and those sort of things. But it was not a massive edit so that was relatively quick as well, and then and then then it came out in January. January this year, twelve. Yes, yeah. oh, it is an incredibly compulsive read. I read it in one afternoon. I was on a mm. train, and I didn't. I was disappointed when I got to my train stop. Yeah, and then I walked home as fast as I could, and then I just sat down and read read the rest of it. So it had had a wonderful momentum to it. With this first book that you wrote. Mm. Do you still hold out some hope for that? Yes. <laughs> it was funny because I, I, I wrote it and, you know, you write and you write and you write and you think, yeah, this is it, it's brilliant. And then people are like, give it a month and come back to it. And you're like, no, I am sick of it and I can't make it any better. It's a masterpiece, it's Shakespeare. And then you leave it a month and you're like, oh God, it's dog shit. And then you go again, you know, and it's just so hard to let go, but so hard to keep going uh, and see things clearly when you have been looking at something super closely for so long. So I think after three years, it was I could not look at it anymore and sent it off. And everyone was like, yeah, we really like it, but we don't love it. And, you know, now you've proved you can write, go and write another book. Like I was getting all these rejections either from agents or from publishers. And, and it's just like you have to have such a thick skin. And I think writers are potentially sensitive souls and are shit at um, taking criticism um, and rejection. And yet you have to become totally resilient and I would get you know and I'm like well obviously I didn't spend three years to have this as a calling card you know this is totally totally not handling the rejection at all well but what can you do you have to keep on going so I got very angry and pissed off and thought they were all you know they know nothing and now when I look back at the book I think yeah it's not all that but having said that there are bits of it I love there are characters in it I love and I am not putting it in a bin because I will go through it and I will take the, the characters. time will come yeah hmm. I mean, I feel like I learnt writing the first one and I learnt more writing the second one. And I guess for me, the bit I love the most about writing is the edit. 
when you've got something and you can make it better. You've got something to work with. Yeah. That's definitely the best bit. Yeah, it's getting the words out in the first yeah. place. Yeah, it's so hard. It's very hard. And you feel, you know, it's like you are on your own in this huge bubble of self-doubt. And yet, obviously, you have, well, for me anyway, there is an inner part of you that thinks, I can do this. But, you know, all the rest of you is saying, this is stupid, everyone will laugh at you, it's rubbish, you're talentless, like the <laughs> relentless, you know, self-loathing of the writer. Um, but at the same time, that sort of underneath it all thinking, yeah, you know what, I can do it, because if that person can do it, I can do it. And There is that. I mean, you, you do have to be incredibly resilient, mm. as you say. I mean, this year's been the hardest year of my life, mm. or certainly the hardest year since 2006 anyway. You know, I've certainly never worked harder in my life. And I've never had more self-doubt in my mm. life. But at the same time, the highs are incredible. Yeah. The writer's high is almost like the runner's high. Yeah. You know, it's it keeps you hungry for the next time. And you just think, oh, well, you know, I have to have a bad writing day every now and then, just like I have to have a bad run yeah. every now and then, or a bad yoga class or whatever. But um, yeah. So how do you keep yourself motivated as a writer? <sighs> It's really hard. I'm terribly undisciplined and I will do anything not to do the work. I will do laundry. I will make soup. I will tidy boxes. I will just leave the house. I hate the blank page. And yet once you're sitting down, it's never that bad. And once you start, it's okay. It's like exercise. Once you actually get into it, you're like, this is good for me and I like it. And actually I have cracked this sentence and that feeling of achievement you get once you're sitting down is, you know, it is about sitting on the chair. Mm. And I used to go out with the writer and I lived with him and I was so jealous. He would be in his in the study, eight every morning writing and he would still be there at six at night. And I had taken some time off work, this about five years ago. And I would just be like, come and watch a movie, come for a walk. And he'd be like, I'm fucking working. And I'm like, no, if I don't have the discipline, you're not, you know. And it was, it was horrible. And I was just obviously trying to um, have a fellow partner in crime. But it's, it's about sitting on the chair and there's no... The problem is that you have to go through the bad writing to get to the good writing often. Yes, I've um, found that, definitely. And one piece of advice people said to me is just don't reread till you've got further on. And I relentlessly reread. It's like picking a spot and then you like... <gasps> I mean, you know, I've had sentences that have... Not on pear-shaped, actually. I didn't reread. I just went forward with it. But on the first book and on what I'm writing now, I keep on looking backwards. And I suppose it is the metaphor of running. You know, if you're running a race, you're going to be screwed if you're looking over your shoulder. Mm. It's not helpful. You've got to get some distance from things and you've got to move forward. Did you always want to be a writer? Yeah, but I also wanted to be a hairdresser and an air stewardess. But I know I, I did always want to write. I remember my grandma was a writer. In fact, I shall show you her book. She... She was a writer, she wrote screenplays and she wrote this cookery book, which is really quite great, if I say so myself. Um, she lived to 100 and was a very groovy lady. And that is a book she wrote with a friend where they had recipes for specific meals. So, you know, dinner to make your husband's boss when your husband is about to get fired. So very, And it was written in the 50s, so it was quite... Um... Supper given after board meeting held to discuss crisis. Yes. <laughs> Aim to soothe and nourish the agitated board members and to send them home in a happier frame of mind. <laughs> it's terribly of its time. Oh, um, how wonderful. But I, I think she was a big influence on me in terms of she was a good cook and she loved words. My father, is he reads a book a day and he loves words too and my mother is a fantastic cook. So I've always been around food and writing and I I would even read cereal packets I mean I will relentlessly read any bit of copy 
that is in front of me and I always wanted to do it and I never did it I just told people I'm gonna do it and they were like yeah yeah dear you and everyone else and I, I didn't do it and then I had a series of jobs I hated in the media advertising I was worried that if I didn't give it my best shot I would be bitter and so when I was 30 I took redundancy to try and write the book and this is all sounding quite familiar I've got uh, to say. <laughs> I mean I think this is the thing you know I, I come from a family of very hard-working people who are like artists don't make money get a job in an office and and while they never discouraged me they were never like put you know follow your creative dreams and go and finger paint and you'll be you know like they wanted me to be safe and secure and I totally get that but mm. but I never felt I could do it because I think that was what other people did and it would never happen for me but I also had this itch that was always I was always wanting to scratch it and I suppose if you have these inner voices you have to you have to be true to them. And I wish in a way, when I was 21, I had had the confidence to say, I can do this and I'm going to work hard because I think I would be better, I would be better now at writing if I had been crafting for 15 years. Having said that, I had phenomenal life experience in a series of horrendous jobs that will be used relentlessly in my writing for the rest of my life. So I think it's good to experience work and real life and and then go that's how I feel too because I spent my 20s I mean I look back and just think oh god you completely wasted so many years of your life doing things you shouldn't have been doing but I spent my 20s doing everything you should do in your 20s mm. you know you work in the wrong jobs making mistakes you, you make mistakes you're with the wrong people yeah you, you travel you experience life you meet people and then that is the material yeah. that you use later on. Absolutely. Um, and I don't think I actually would have written anything worth reading yeah. at the time. Yeah. Uh, maybe what I've written now at age 31 is not worth reading. Who knows? I but I know it it's a lot better than, than what it would have been five or six years ago. Mm. And I mean, I look at some of my blog posts I wrote in 2006 when I was 25 and I just cringe because they're just so flowery and full of badly constructed sentences I know but I, I know and I, I do the same with my writing even now actually and it, it's you know I think it's like the sound of your own voice on an answering machine or whatever one is always one's own worst critic and I'm sure they're actually very good also you do evolve over time and you get better at things I guess when you're thinking about them and I think there needs to be a gestation as well and as you say if you haven't experienced stuff then what can you write about really there is that exactly Sophie has a lovely relationship with her grandmother in pear shape. Yes. I really enjoyed that. Yes. Um, that relationship. So is that inspired by your grandmother? Yes. That was Cecily was, or Joan? Yeah, Cecily. She lived to 100 and she was a very, very feisty, sparky lady. She was an inspiration. Actually, she lived in this flat and she um, she died before the book was published and I, I wish she had been around to see it because I think she would um, have liked it. But she was... She was cool. And my other grandma on the other side, I she died when I was seven, but she was an amazing cook. Like Jewish grandmothers, and they tend to feed you to the gills. But um, <laughs> one is lucky if one has grandparents. I think they have a huge influence on people, don't they, really? They do. They're, they're very special. It's such a unique relationship you have with them. And and when, when they're gone, it's... Um, it's a gap that can never mm. really be filled by anyone else. Mm. So do M&S make the best puddings? Yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely. No, they're brilliant M&S puddings. Uh, stuff you couldn't make yourself technically or for the money, I would say, and show-stopping, impressive, like whether they look beautiful or whether they just taste amazing. You know, you can get like 
two sponge puddings which you stick in a microwave for 40 seconds and have with their custard and it's like 75p a pudding and yeah it's to- it's just lush no they're brilliant they're brilliant M&S <laughs> what's your favourite M&S pudding? god there's this hot chocolate Belgian thing that's meant to be for four and I have done most of it on my own <laughs> you have to have cream with it or you, you will be sick but it's just like swimming in hot chocolate if that's something that would appeal to you it would appeal to me oh I it would appeal to me yes it would for me, writing that book, what I did was the emotions were true and the facts were not true. Because I was thinking, how could I explain why I feel these really bad feelings? I don't understand why, you know, and I had to work backwards. I had the emotions and then the the facts were sort of made up. And I think that's a brilliant and beautiful thing because it lets it be universal without you necessarily having to put down on paper. Which, you know, as you say, we don't live plots and perhaps what happened in real life was not as interesting as what's on the page. No, exactly. So you make it stand up on its own and it's um, very pleasing. The bits that I'm really proud of, I'm still really proud of. And it's like, it feels like I've got something in the bank, you know. It feels like, uh, I, don't, I certainly don't mean money. <laughs> um, but, you know, like there's a, a bit where she goes on a date with him at the beginning of the book where she's like, and we both love these crisps and we both... You know when you first meet someone and you think of all the things you have in common... And it's like a massive narcissism thing where you're like, oh, you love this TV show and you love this colour and you've been to Paris and, you know, therefore we are identical and therefore we are destined to, you know, be with each other. And so she finds all the things they have in common on the on the second date and she says we're like a game of snap. And then much later in the book when he does something vile to her, she just sort of says unsnap. And it was because, you know, it's obviously a we are not thinking, you know, because he's like, oh, well, it's all right for me to treat you like this. And she finally is like, oh, my God, hang on a minute. I kind of now see what's been going on. And she says unsnap because she's saying, well, your version is not my version anymore. And now I am no longer looking at you thinking, aren't we similar? I'm thinking you are the opposite of me and you are something quite horrendous. And also it's an unsnap because something in her brain literally does just break at that point because she realises she's been a fool. And that writing for me, it's not Shakespeare, but I just thought, oh, I'm really proud of that word. (laughs) Like, I'm really proud of that because I think it does exactly what I want it to do. And thank you, English language, for providing a word that means two things. And I want it to mean both. So there are moments like that. And, you know, in an ideal world, you'd have that on every page. And that's certainly not (laughs) the case. But, you know. The character of... Devron. Mm. <laughs> is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. Um, yeah. He was quite a character. He's in book two. I can't get enough of him because I <laughs> I have had some of the world's most awful bosses. I really have had a collection of vile, sadist bullies. So Devron is an amalgamation of several horrendous yeah, bosses. Two of them. But actually one of the conversations that she has with Devron it was a verbatim. But, you know, sometimes things happen in life that no one would believe. Well, exactly. And it's almost like you couldn't make Yeah, <laughs> no. So is that the one where she actually finally tells him where to go? No, sadly not. not you, never, you never do tell your boss where to go. No. Although in the new book, I am toying with that. Although I don't know if it's ever going to be believable that someone does the big truth rampage. I think the, the, the new book, I want my character to go postal, not in a shooting her co-worker's way, but just in an absolute, you know, we have this corporate face and we make nice and we eat, you know, we take a lot of blows because you have to because you need a salary and you have bills mm. and you want to be employed. I mean, you know, I have loads of good friends I've met along the way, but I have also seen such obscenely disgusting behaviour. Mm. It becomes absolutely normalised to treat people horrendously, mm. you know, and it's I find offices fascinating and repulsive and very interesting. So 
Yeah, Devron is is at least two of my bosses. You also have a fascinating um, appendix in the in mm. Persian. So you list some of your sources of inspiration, mm. but you've also got your little list of you must go here when you're in London, mm. you must mm. go here when you're in New York. It's your sources mm. um, and the pieces of work that mm. were an inspiration to you that I found fascinating. Yeah. Particularly the Sophie Cowell one. Yeah. I reference her in the back of Pear Shape because she is basically, she's this really groovy French conceptual artist who went out with a, by all accounts, knobhead. <laughs> she was quite madly in love with him and then he dumped her by email. And Hideous. Yeah, well, very self-justifying, massively like, because you said that if I ever cheated on you, you would leave me. You're going to have to leave. Like, he managed to blame his infidelity on her, which I think is always a brilliant thing when men turn around and blame you for their bad behaviour. But it does... I mean, I see countless examples of that in real life. She got... I wouldn't call it revenge, but she processed the whole thing. In fact, I'll read you what it says at the start of the book. I received an email telling me it was over. I didn't know how to respond. It was almost as if it hadn't been meant for me. It ended with the words, take care of yourself. And so I did. I asked 107 women, including two made from wood and one with feathers. She gets a parrot involved. (laughs) (laughs) Chosen for their professional skills to interpret this letter. To analyse it, comment on it, dance it, sing it, dissect it, exhaust it, understand it for me, answer for me. It was a way of taking the time to break up, a way of taking care of myself. So in terms of the ultimate catharsis, she basically took his letter and showed it to all these brilliant, clever women. So there's a physicist, there's a composer, there's a schoolgirl a sexologist, a judge. She wore through the material of this to the point where it didn't hurt her anymore. So in the book, um, she's done it in Braille, in lovely pink sparkly Braille. But she, you know, it's just this amazing. And I, I, you know, some people love this book and think, God, that's so interesting. And some people are like, bloody hell, what a navel-gazing stupid cow. (laughs) But I find it fascinating because it's a way of taking control of something that is painful and making it into something cathartic and, and entertaining, really. A lot of powerful female fiction is from the heart and it's about the emotional honesty, which is why I don't read books where people have cocktails and everything's fixed in five minutes because that's not uh, my experience of life. Because I read one of the other books that I write about in the back is Nora Ephron's Heartburn, which was similar. She, in real life, had been out with... uh, Married. Second husband was one of the Watergate journalists and he cheated on her when she was heavily pregnant with their second child with one of their friends and... She wrote this book about it and she she said it was fiction, but it was pretty much to the letter of what had happened. And it was her way of taking control of a very painful situation. And I think at the back of that book, she someone her therapist or her friend says, why are you exposing all this stuff that happened to you? You know, like, you don't want to admit that these, you know, why would you acknowledge that bad things happened to you? And she said, because that way I'm not the victim. I get yeah. to, you know, I get to write the ending of it. And I think Nora Ephron, who I... I think it's a brilliant, was a brilliant, brilliant writer and wonderful human being by all accounts. She said, be the heroine of your, of own, your life. own life. And yes. I just think, you know, I, I do think the character in the book struggles to man up a bit and she gets there in the end. Yes, um, she does. But I think being a victim is not very helpful. So what yeah. can we expect to see from Stella Newman in the near future? Um, the new book is about loneliness. And again, I mean, I, you know, I would say this book is about heartbreak, but you could say it's about cake. And I think... And uh, M&S custard. Yes. And brownies. <laughs> <laughs> and the new book is about pasta and loneliness. And I think I love writing about food because I like thinking about it and eating it. So 
There is lots of food in the new book, not cake though, savouries. And I'm just interested in what it really is like to be on ground level in a city in 2012. So is there a a central character's name, profession, preferred past dish? Yes, she she works in an advertising agency. I used to work in an advertising agency. (laughs) (laughs) She works on a pizza account and... uh, I'm very interested in advertising and the advertising of food and the advertising of food that is bad for you with models that are, you know, those sort of things. And brands, I find brands, you know, we can't possibly live without them. You know, that guy wrote a book about living without brands and yet he was still banking with the brand. He was writing it on a Mac. You know, it is mm. not, it's very hard to step off totally from that. But I also think, you know, when you have... A brand tweeting, you know, why is a detergent? Why is a washing powder twi- tweeting? Like this doesn't, you know, these these this is a crazy, crazy world we live in. Having worked in that industry, I want to explore that gap between truth and bullshit. That gap between what we say and what we actually are. And that was Stella Newman, author of Pear Shaped. All the details of Stella's book and her various blogs and all the other books that we mentioned are on the Bookends website, www.bookendspodcast.wordpress.com. Well, I hope you enjoyed our chat. Thank you very much for listening. And thank you again to Stella for having me around for tea and cookies and eventually wine. And of course, my wonderful audio producer for turning our three hour chat into a far more reasonable 40 odd minutes. Join me next time, where I'll be talking to Zimbabwean author Andrea Eames, author of two novels, one of which was recently nominated for the Dylan Thomas Prize, and she's only 27. She will be sharing her thoughts on the writing life and process, so I hope very much that you'll join us then. Bye for now. (laughs) 